And the, the story always tells is that he says, if that older woman has a cardiac arrest today while she's walking, that's the way it will be. It'll be titled as it was a cardiac arrest cause of death. What he had this realization all at once was actually no. What the real cause of death would be a uh, lack of street planning, lack of sidewalks, lack of tree canopy for shade, poor public transportation and lack of buffs infrastructure, poor affordable housing availability that allows elderly people to stay in their homes. And that story was literally what set off his career and uh, a lot of ours, including mine. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Today, I am joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Leglisi. Hello, everybody. What's up, Rob? I thought we can reminisce about Design Lab. This is our 50th episode. So crazy, man. Can't even believe it. It's crazy. Can you believe that? I, I thought we were only going to do a couple episodes. <laughs> I know. I know. It doesn't feel like we've done 50, but when I look back at the list of guests, pretty awesome. It's a really great, really great, amazing group of people we have. I mean, what what's a stat out there? Isn't it like something that podcasts fail after a couple of episodes or something like that? Yeah. So I think seven is the lucky number where a majority of podcasts that get made don't make it past episode seven. And if you do, there's a good chance that you'll continue. Well, 50 is pretty good. I think let's look forward to 100, man. I I love that we were nominated as one of the best creative podcasts by Fast Company. That was pretty cool. There's over 2 million podcasts. I was shocked. I mean, on that list are some of my favorite uh, podcasts like 99% Invisible, mm-hmm. The Design of Business, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. and Pretty serious list. It's a good yeah. company, right? Scratching the Surface, too, is another favorite podcast of mine. So super cool to be on that. Yeah, not, not bad for just a couple of doctors doing their best to learn from all these amazing voices. So some listeners ask us how big our production team is, and I wanted to maybe give them a little bit of a sneak peek of how the podcast is made. It's just us. We do everything from inviting the guests, from recording, (laughs) to editing the podcast, to doing all the social media on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. So it is just us two who are doing this. Yeah, this is a grassroots podcast. We, We do it because we love it. And we get so much out of making the show. I get so much out of being able to listen to all these incredible perspectives and and sharing those perspectives with the world. And the fact that people are listening makes it all so worth it. I know. And when people give us a shout out on social media, that's super cool. So we don't take any money. Uh, this is self-funded. So how can listeners support us, Rob? So the best way that you can support us is to go on Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. I don't know why. Not, Apple not podcast, four stars, five stars. No, no definitely yeah, don't not get, four. Yeah. No, you know, it's five or nothing. And I don't know why Apple Podcasts is the only platform that allows you to rate because there are so many podcasting platforms. Like I tend to use Spotify. So if you're a Spotify listener, just do us a favor and open up Apple Podcasts just so you can give us a review. Give us a review. Give us five stars. We're at 4.9. I don't know who gave us a bad uh, rating. If you're going to give us a bad rating, don't do it. Okay. Just go out and give us five stars. <laughs> Leave us a comment. One of my favorite reviews by, was by Jules Sherman. I mentioned her before. She Her title of review was Design Lab is my religion. How cool is that? 
I know it, hearing from folks talking about what they love about the show, suggestions for ways we can improve suggestions, even for people we should have on the show that really helps us make the show better and gives us the energy to keep it up. Totally. An upcoming guest that we have in December was suggested by one of our listeners. So that was pretty cool. Very cool. So today's guest is a good friend of ours. It's Dr. Matt Trowbridge. He is a physician and he's the chief medical officer at International Wellbuilding Institute. He's also the associate professor at University of Virginia School of Medicine. So Matt's academic research focuses on the impact of architecture, urban design, and transportation planning on individual and population health. Prior to joining the International Wellbuilding Institute, Matt served as the principal investigator for the Green Health Partnership between UVA and the U.S. Green Building Council. It's a multi-year initiative funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's focused on increasing the consideration of health and well-being outcomes across global real estate by applying green building principles of market transformation. His notable accomplishments include the development of the health and well-being module in partnership with the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark and launch of the integrated process for health promotion credit within the leadership in the energy and environmental design, otherwise known as LEED, a green building framework. Matt is board certified in both general pediatrics and preventative medicine, and he obtained his medical and public health training at Emory University. We talk about so many things like how the built environment is a modifiable risk factor for health, public health experts as design thinkers, and why creativity will win over time. Matt Trowbridge, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you so much, Bon. You are a good friend of mine, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. And you made a shift in your career path. You are the chief medical officer for the International Well-Building Institute. What is well, and what problem are you trying to solve there? Absolutely. So as you know, I've been fascinated with the role of the built environment as a determinant of health pretty much my entire professional career. That's been the focus of my research for a long time and something that I, you know, proud to be a part of as a researcher first. And now, yeah, just a, under a year ago, I was given a chance to become chief medical officer at IWBI, International Well-Building Institute. And they are best known for the well-building standard, which is something I kind of have been chasing my entire career. The idea of building uh, health promotion into the way the built environment, the places we live and work and play are, are designed and operated. The cool thing is that IWBI is just taking that idea and that's their business. So the well standard is, it is just entirely focused on how do we make healthy places? So it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. So is it like those lead building standards that you see if a building is environmentally friendly and then you have a standard where this is a rating scale for a healthy building or not a healthy building? Exactly, exactly. In fact, that's a lot of my own personal research and academic career centered around the green building industry. I was fortunate enough, and as I came out of medical school into public health training, I, I just happened to be trained by a group of physicians at Emory and the Centers for Disease Control who were really doing some of the pioneering work in identifying the built environment as a determinant of health. So I was fortunate 
to be kind of exposed to the built environment in that way. But after a while of just being involved in research, proving how important the built environment is to health, I really wanted to do something about it. So I started studying the I'm, green I'm gonna, building I'm going to interrupt yeah. for one second yeah. and ask you, what is the built environment? Can you define that? Because sure, you're one of the first doctors that I met who built a research platform on the built environment health. And I thought that was so cool. So I learned a lot from your expertise, but honestly, you know, in medical school and residency and being a doctor, I didn't really know what built environment meant until I started hanging out with people like you and architects. That's a great point, Bond. I think that's the thing I'm most appreciative of is that I was exposed to the idea of the built environment very early. So, right. So what is the built environment? Essentially the built environment are, is everything in our physical environment where like the buildings we inhabit, urban planning, the way we design cities and, and so forth. It's basically all the constructed parts of our lives, man-made constructed environments. And once you think about the built environment that way, you start looking around and realizing that someone has to design road systems and sidewalks and streets and, and then the buildings themselves, the schools that our kids go to, things like that. So and uh, even, I, even like landscapes, because correct, those are, you would think that's just natural, but a lot of times those are designed and shaped as well. Absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite examples is Central Park. If you haven't looked at it before, you should, you should, next time you go there, realize that literally every inch of that is entirely man-made. If you look back into historical photographs from Olmsted's, you know, kind of construction, I mean, it was, it was literally brought down to nothing and then designed completely to, to be what it is. It is not a natural landscape at all. And it's kind of, I've read that Central Park was in some ways a public health intervention. They referred to it as the lungs of the city, right? That's right. In fact, something that I, a lot of uh, built environment researchers like to bring up is the fact that it's actually strange historically to have a separation of land use and public health. Because to your point, particularly at the time of things like Central Park, the idea was we needed a place in the city to get clean air, to have clean water to enjoy, things like that. The idea that we started making land use decisions separate of public health and having those departments and functions distinct was actually a strange thing and actually something a lot of us in public health are hoping to, to rectify. So I want to, sorry, I interrupted you before because you were telling me about your journey, which is a super interesting one, right? You're trained as a pediatrician who majored in English in college at Tufts University. Then you became this global expert in understanding how the built environment impacts our health. How did that happen? I think the only way to explain the way I am wired and what I do today is to think back to my own childhood and, and the exposures I had early on. I grew up in Atlanta. My dad was a physician, but he was also a, a public health expert. He was one of the really original Centers for Disease Control epidemic intelligence officers you know, in the 70s and, and, and 80s. So That's I so literally- cool. He's like those guys in the movies. <laughs> no, he, I, I, all kidding aside, I actually literally grew up with those people you see. My dad saw some of the last cases of smallpox, for example. I, I grew up literally with the people who eradicated smallpox. My dad also ended up, his area of, of expertise is nutrition. So he was involved in a global childhood malnutrition efforts at a, 
you know, literally at a global scale. I, I grew up with people who took on malaria, hemorrhagic fevers, and so forth. So to be a doctor when I was growing up in Atlanta meant that was what you were taking on, like huge public health issues. And I kind of joke about it. I was thinking about getting ready for this podcast, Bond. All of the people I grew up with were, all of them were design thinkers. They would not have said that about themselves, but a classic design stuff everywhere to solve those issues. Wait, what, what do you mean? How are they, why would you define them as design thinkers? Because these guys were public health experts. So one of my favorite stories is a, a, a hero of mine and not just mine is a gentleman named Bill Fagey. He was one of the original directors of the Centers for Disease Control. And he, along with Jeff Copeland, are really credited with driving the eradication of smallpox. And uh, he, interestingly, the way that smallpox uh, eradication finally worked was when they came up with the idea of ring vaccination. And this was this idea because Prior to the efforts by the Centers for Disease Control, the way that they were trying to do vaccination efforts was to try in vain to have every country's vaccination efforts perfectly coordinated at the same time. Problem with that and the, the kind of the disease, you know, characteristics of smallpox, if one country slightly dropped the ball, it was over. Mm -hmm. So instead what they did was they used actually the missionaries with ham radios to kind of essentially kind of like the internet to find cases of smallpox and then hear about them come into the area and then they would go up to children playing around in villages and show show pictures of someone with smallpox and be like have you ever seen anyone like this and when they said yes they would then find a way to have a, a town meeting where everyone would be gathered in from the rural areas and they would just vaccinate there and by doing those ring vaccinations letting go of country level of vaccination, that's how they were able to do it. And it, to me, they just, they thought about their user, they, they, they reframed the problem and that's how they were able to bring that kind of success. So those are the stories I was raised on. That's so cool. So you had these really giants in public health that influenced your career at an early stage. Um, I want to get back to the well-building Institute. So what problem are you trying to solve there? Because you have a expertise in public health research and looking at this intersection between the built environment and health, you're at University of Virginia and it's a bit of an unusual career path, right? Because you must have been so passionate about this to jump gears into a career path. I think that many of us in academic medicine don't think about. What I'm chasing and what IWI uh, is chasing is to have health promotion be not just something that businesses want to do to do the right thing, but like have it also just make great business sense. Because to me, that's when we're going to finally have the industry at a global scale working together to make healthy places. Because to me, it's exciting when we make like one one school project or something that has some cool features. And, and that's going to have a real big impact on the people who use the building or immediately around it. But to take on the things we say we're, we're working on, things like childhood obesity or social isolation at a, a huge scale, I mean, we need a massive industry level change in the way places are built and considered. So you asked me earlier, is this something similar to the green building uh, certification? Yes. And I'm really inspired by the way that the green building movement I like to say made sustainability an investable attribute of real estate. Uh, 
once there was a thing like a lead building, it, it had value. So people did it more. And I want the same thing for healthy buildings. Can you give me examples of how buildings suck for our health? <laughs> that is unfortunately not very hard. You know, I think you can think about things like school buildings or something I always have been fascinated with. Just even the, the, the design of a school, right? We're saying all these things like we want, we want children to have healthy, freshly prepared food in public schools. And yet, if you go around and look at, as I have, kitchens in schools, you know, they were designed you know, around a model from the 1940s and 50s of kind of the assumption was that it'd be frozen food in the back and kind of an assembly line. Yeah, it's not an easy place to do the type of cooking you're asking. So just subtle things like that, having the policy we want, healthy food, not match up with the design. Same thing with things like uh, playgrounds on schools or how do you do, is there a safe, easy opportunity for kids to be physically active, not just during the school day, but can you do something like you know, sometimes there are even like policy reasons why we're not uh, allowed to use our schools after hours. So it's, I think there are a lot of chances lost just by bad design and makes policies we know work harder to implement, for example. Mm. I love that. So you're trying to actually change the DNA of buildings and the built environment for them to eventually be, be healthy. And Absolutely. To make it from day one, be healthy and try to change existing infrastructure. And I'm kind of curious to know, what are some projects out there that inspire you about building healthier places? We're starting to see an amazing array of projects that show what's possible. If you've been to Atlanta, for example, which is where I grew up, as I mentioned, one of the most striking and transformative aspects of the built environment is a project called the Atlanta Beltline, which was actually you know, started by a, a Georgia Tech urban planning student who in the early days of GIS, he was just looking at pictures of Atlanta from a sky view, which was kind of novel at the time. And he kind of realized that he could see a ring where, which was an abandoned railway right of way and started to realize that Atlanta actually retained a lot of control over it and what they were able to do. And if you, it's amazing when you go there now, particularly having lived there as a kid, that has turned into this huge, incredibly ambitious, like urban park that goes through some of the most interesting parts, you know, of Atlanta and has connected areas that have never been connected. And it basically have created a remarkable opportunity for people to get out and uh, be physically active. It's a, it's a remarkable example of the way that the built environment can literally transform how a city is used. And it also brings up key questions like, where are you going to invest? You know, are you only going to invest in the fancy parts of a city or how can you enliven and bring resources to, to areas of the city with lower income and so forth? I remember the last time I visited Atlanta, I was walking on the streets during the daytime in downtown Atlanta. And I remember I'm the only person walking here. There's like nobody walking in the city. It's a beautiful city. And I'm thinking, why isn't anybody walking? And I just got back from a trip from Dallas, Texas, and the same thing, that it seems that the whole city was designed around cars and streets and uh, parking lots are kind of like the aspirational design goal of that city. And it's great for cars, but if you're trying to walk in some of these places, it's difficult. I was just in Dallas, so I was in my car, I had a rental car, and 
there was a guy in a wheelchair trying to cross basically the street, but the street was six lanes. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to get run over. This guy's, this poor guy's in the wheelchair. And why do we do that? Why do we design cities like that? So the fact that you bring up Atlanta, and I'm almost positive, you're probably describing a road called Buford Highway in Atlanta. What's fascinating about that is actually you just describe the kind of origin story that many people identify of from Richard Jackson, who many credit as one of being one of the first physicians to really identify the built environment as a, a modifiable risk factor. <laughs> and and the, the famous story he always tells is exactly that one. He was driving along Buford Highway on a very hot Atlanta summer day. And along Buford Highway, he, he had that classic thing where you see like the worn kind of grass strip where people walk along the side of the thing because there's no sidewalk there. And he saw an elderly woman on a like 95 degrees Atlanta day walking really slowly. And what struck him was she looked a lot like his own mother. And he had this thought, he was a, he's a world famous epidemiologist and he was in charge of the environmental health department at CDC at the time. And the, the story he always tells is that he says, if that older woman has a cardiac arrest today while she's walking, that's the way it will be. It'll be titled as it was a cardiac arrest cause of death. What he had this realization all at once was actually no, what the real cause of death would be a lack of street planning lack of sidewalks, lack of tree canopy for shade, poor public transportation and lack of buffs infrastructure, poor affordable housing availability that allows elderly people to stay in their homes. And that's really, that story was literally what set off his career and uh, a lot of ours, including mine. That's amazing. So I love what you said, the environment is a modifiable risk factor, just like if you think of heart disease, uh, it's like diabetes or hypertension or smoking that you can actually, there's an, actually an opportunity there to change those risk factors and decrease your risk of not only mortal vehicle crashes, but you're saying like other things like obesity and diabetes. Absolutely. You know, as well as I, and I think a lot of people who listen to your podcast know that I don't know, the, the overwhelming evidence is that probably only about 20% of population level health outcomes are driven by the kind of quality of medical care you and I provide in the hospital. I mean, everything else is that social and environmental determinants of health. The reason I like to focus on the built environment is that of those social and environmental determinants of health, there's a fairly limited set that we can change somewhat readily. And built environment is one of those. Now it's hard, it's not easy, but you can get your hands around it, right? <laughs> you can redesign a building, you can change policies, you can have an impact. So that's, that's exactly why I centered in on it. You can look back in history and find, in my opinion, policy, huge policy mistakes that we made that, and then you can see the outcomes. And hopefully we have the opportunity now to become more aware of those kinds of ideas and mistakes we've made and try to be more deliberate and equitable going forward. But why is this so hard to do? Like, what are the challenges that you face? Cause it seems like a no brainer to me. So let me get nerdy for a second, but I know you, you have your own uh, public policy background, economics background. Honestly, the real thing to understand and why does the built environment end up the way it does without intervention 
And it comes down to that concept of externality, you know, where if you don't have a way of capturing value from health or people in a real estate transaction, then the developer has no incentive to either do things that might cost a bit more money, but not necessarily if, if there's no value proposition, it doesn't lead to more rents or so it's just lost value. Same wise, and by the same token, when there's an externality around something, if you create an environment that has societal cost, you don't, as the developer, aren't forced to bear that cost. That sounds kind of boring when you say it that way, but it has that's what happens in our environment. I mean, one of some of the work I did previously, I'm very proud of is with my chair of emergency medicine at University of Virginia, we looked at quantifying the impact, for example, of urban sprawl on emergency medical service response time. And we looked at, we were able to quantify that sprawl has a huge impact on the reliability of EMS systems, which is not a shocker. EMS systems were designed more for your neighborhood, you know, kind of the outskirts of Philadelphia, like traditional networks, you know, with lots of street connectivity. You throw them into an area like the outskirts of Atlanta, it's really hard to deliver hospital, you know, emergency care at, at the speed that people expect. But developers, if you don't measure it, they don't have to consider that. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that it has to be part of the value proposition and what we quantify in terms of the cost, quote unquote, of a project. Yeah. It reminds me of healthcare and the insurance agency and thinking about how we need to redesign how we pay for healthcare. We have this big movement of paying for uh, quality, not quantity of medical services provided. And, and it seems like you're doing the same thing around the built environment health that you want to create those economic incentives for health rather than traditionally the way it's been done. We haven't been paying for health. Uh, in the built environment, in, in the same way of how insurance companies have been paying for quantity, not quality of care. Absolutely. And again, that is why the model of green building was so fascinating to me, because it is an example where an externality around sustainability was dealt with successfully and green became a, a big business. And I'm fine with that because we also... Uh, as a world kind of now, it would be very hard to build a truly non-green building. You would definitely be going against normative business practices now. And that's all because of the green building movement. And I genuinely it believe- It wasn't like that before. Not at all. Would you say before all those standards were built in? No, uh, the lead building standard and some of the other large green building standards, they were started in the early 1990s. Prior to that, no, lead changed the business entirely. And now I think we have the conversation we have and we are able to, to quantify sustainability in a very different way. I think that has been the goal of my career and why I'm really excited. The International Well Building Institute and, and other certification systems are now coming onto the market, trying to make that same value proposition possible for health. And so, yeah, Bon, it's interesting. I mean, this is where the, our design training comes in, learning how to take my public health knowledge but make sure I'm listening to the user. I want to change their behavior. So what do I need to say to make a real estate developer listen to me? Well, you, I say things like, hey, hasn't green been great? You've been able to differentiate your properties based on green. The challenging part is now most projects are green. Hmm. So uh, what's the next area of differentiation? 
And the argument we're making is that health and showing that your property has explicit kind of people focused features and is socially minded is a real value driver going forward. And I also think a risk reduction kind of strategy, because I genuinely believe we're in an era, whether it's the way the SEC is getting ready to have required disclosure on, on all sorts of human and social capital metrics, you're going to need to have a good story as a company about how you are a good citizen, corporate citizen. And that includes things like, hey, you just built a billion dollar skyrise commercial building. How'd you, how did you incorporate a consideration of community impacts into that building? How did you think about the construction workers on it? Who is this going to serve other than just the pure tenants? And so I think those are things that business, business professionals listen to. And it's, but it's taken me some time to yeah. learn how to be a doctor who can make that type of argument. I'm curious to know what role creativity has played in your journey, because you are a, a physician, a public health researcher, an expert on the built environment. And I think of you as a creative person, but you know, most of the public probably doesn't think of doctors as being in research as being creative. So is, was creativity an important part of your journey? Absolutely. But I think that is something that I cherish about our friendship and our kind of shared mission, you, you and I. I really want there to be a called out formal part of being a medical professional to be creative and to get good at being creative. Because I think there are skills that you can, it's, it's not just like an anointed, you know, characteristic of yourself to be creative. You can get better at it, right? You can get better at team-based collaboration. We teach things like design thinking, human-centered design, call it whatever you want. The way I kind of frame it for my med students is, hey, welcome to the University of Virginia School of Medicine. We are going to train you in a whole slew of rigorous processes for making sure when there's a complex trauma or a, an undifferentiated patient that you and the team know how we're going to approach that and how we're going to do a good job together and not miss things. There's a similar processes out there for being creative <laughs> uh, and we just need a shared lexicon and we can increase the reliability of coming up with useful solutions that actually serve end users, patients, and stakeholders. But it, there is rigor you can bring to this. And so I, I, I love that, that you're elevating <laughs> creativity on the same scale as our quantitative scientific reasoning, our medical decision-making, that you're elevating creativity and you're making an argument for that. I love that. I, I also always say to our students, they like, hey, if you, you, congratulations of getting into UVA, because you're here at UVA, we're not just going to train you to be a world-class clinician. Like we want you to be a leader. And the reality is the biggest issues in healthcare, public health are these huge, complex systems-based issues. They're just not going to be solved through traditional empirical science. I have nothing. I just, love Just like science. our current pandemic, right? We had amazing science that led to an, an amazing mRNA vaccine that can keep people from dying. And yet we can't get our country vaccinated. It's the ultimate human-centered problem, right? It's a design problem and exactly right. So that's why I, I try to say to them, it's really important to learn how to, when everyone else around you 
with a medical training is running away from a really complex, ambiguous problem. I want you to be, have the confidence and the experience to instead kind of rub your hands together and say, okay, I I'm ready for this. Let's take this on. Let's break it down. Um, let's get out some post-its and get started. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it, what you're doing is uh, normalizing creativity, imagination through your, through your design thinking program for your medical students. And hopefully that would influence them later on in their careers. Just, just how those public health experts that you hung out with early on in your training normalize this viewpoint of you can, the environment is a modifiable risk factor. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That was such an important early intervention in, in my education, as you said, and I know you feel passionate about this. I do too. I don't actually have time to keep doing my design class at University of Virginia, but I do it anyway, because I, I, my strong suspicion is it might be one of the most impactful parts of my career, i.e. the students that I get, that these students are so smart that come through as you and I always joke about, thank goodness you and I got into med school when we did, right, brother? Because these students coming through are I, I so- would not, I would not get into medical school <laughs> right now. I, so at least they're so smart and they're going to be doing so many amazing things. And I do love the fact that I'm trying to just give them a nudge and a sense of confidence and some skill sets that I have found to be useful. To just, yes, yeah, you said, be more creative, but also be more successfully creative. There, there really are ways of making a team more reliable when it takes on a creative process. And I, that's been very influential to in me to think about it that way. I know you very well, but I don't think I ever really asked you the question of how did you first get into design thinking because I think I connected with you because I was trying to learn about design thinking in healthcare. And I was doing some research looking at PubMed, which is the Google for publications. And you were actually writing about design and public health. And I, you were one of the few people doing it. And I thought, who is this geek who found this intersection? And, but I respected that you as a researcher in many ways was legitimizing human-centered design or design thinking and what inspired you first to get into that? The cool thing is I literally have an exact moment when I was introduced to design thinking. It came in the middle of this remarkably interesting project I got to do working with an architecture firm here in Charlottesville, VMDO Architects. And we were able to work on a, a redesign of a school in rural Virginia, it's called Buckingham Elementary. And we had been tasked by the superintendent who wanted the school to be more than just a green building. He had come to VMDO and said, actually the biggest problem in my community is childhood obesity. And this major redesign of this school is probably the only $30 million infusion into children for children that will happen in my community for the next 20 years. So it can't just be green. It has to be healthy. So they had brought me on and we were working on how do you make a school that promotes healthy eating and physical activity. And somewhere in the middle of it, I was working with an amazing architect, Dina Sorensen, and it was late at night and we were chatting and about stuff. And I said, oh, it's so fascinating the way you approach these issues and, and so forth. And she said, well, Matt, you're really good at this. You, do you realize you're a designer? 
I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a physician. She was like, no, you're not. You come in with this very kind of innate kind of orientation that is the core way we're trained, which is you keep wondering whether you're asking the right question rather than just saying, here's the solution I've got. And I said, okay, well, that's just the way I'm wired. And she says, no, you're a designer. And I said, well, it's been really helpful for me to learn from you guys. Like, how do I learn more? How do I, how do I also maybe spread the news that, that this is an interesting way to be a public health researcher? And she said, go home tonight and Google design thinking. <laughs> I said, okay. Get out. I did not know that. And That's she a said, great story. The funny part was she said, well, I'll be honest with you, Matt, as a designer, I find design thinking a little frustrating because she says it tries to package up something I spent a whole career getting good at. She says, but the reality is it does a pretty good job of making some of the core tenets, core mindsets, some of the basic skills and ways of approaching problems more accessible. And she says, for that, I'll give it that, but you might like this. And yeah, once I searched on it, found Dennis Boyle and from IDEO and saw all these things happening. Uh, yeah, this whole my, my brain lit up because I've made a career out of kind of studying very established bodies of work, but that, and then figuring out how to apply them in a new way for public health benefit. Mm -hmm. And that's really the built environment. It's like understanding urban planning and then, okay, how do we take the principles of urban planning and apply them to public health? So being exposed to design thinking, I was like, okay, here's a pedagogy with like decades of work that strangely enough seems to have not been applied within healthcare at all, <laughs> which is crazy. And, so and, crazy. <laughs> and I appreciate how you apply that or introduce that new pedagogy, new framework of thinking into public health research. And because that's a currency as, as in academic medicine, that if it's not published, it's not legitimized. And I think that early work of doing that was super impactful. Thanks. And what I'm really excited about is where you and I and others are at now, because it's accelerated so quickly. When you and I first met each other, we were definitely some lone voices out, yeah. out in the world. Now, I think there are amazing groups like I'm really big fan of what the Better Lab at UCSF out in San Francisco is doing with Amanda Simon, you know, running things like the uh, Design Wednesdays uh, Journal Club. I don't know if you've ever uh, jumped into that. But what's so cool about her, she was a trauma surgeon out there. Um, she is like me. She, she has this vision that there are methods we can develop around design that would make it able to be integrated into things like NIH grants and stuff like that. But we have to have like a body of practice. We have to have people take it seriously as a methodology. And so she's running a monthly journal club there, which is incredible because this has always bugged me that like. If you think about like, how do you get this stuff funded? How do you actually integrate a creative process? Because uh, that's actually the exact opposite of the way like an NIH grant typically operates where you have to kind of come in saying, I know the answer It's 100%. Give me the money and all of that energy and time will go into reducing measurement error. But like, what if the core idea is just wrong? <laughs> or what if you're trying to take on a more complicated thing? We, we've just got to come up with a way that there's rigor in a creative process so that you can come in and, and with some humility, propose a project around an important issue, but be able to say without apologizing, 
hey, there's a, there's a part of this project that's going to have to be iterative. It's going to have some prototyping. And what I promised is not so much the outcome, but that we'll learn a lot from what we learn. <laughs> mm. And then I'll make sure that it's out there for public to, to, to gain in, insights from. My final question for you is, how might we design a healthier life? My big thing, Bon, is in a personal day-to-day way, you have to fight to have time for creativity. You know, you have to, and that comes in like your moment to moment time. Like I'm very uh, protective of my quote unquote wasted time. The time where I just take a walk and just let things flow past my brain. You know, I'm I'm getting old enough now that I can actually, (laughs) I can uh, look back on things from experience, not just hypothesis. And the reality is a lot of my quote unquote wasted time or uh, sidecar conversations and explorations have ended up being some of the most valuable parts of my professional and, per- and personal life. And then I think another small piece of advice I would give if you want to have creativity more part of your daily life is wherever possible, I try to negotiate the metrics that I am uh, kind of measured upon to value impact over output. Because when you're taking on big, things like creativity will win over time, <laughs> but you have to really fight for that. And it can be, it, it, you have to really think carefully about when you're setting up a new job or, or something like make sure wherever possible that people are going to let you kind of have a bit of a process moment. I have the ability to like have some cycles of creativity and iteration because the things that now it looks obvious to do some of the things you've done and I've done but they're not straight line things. So you have to fight for those opportunities to be more creative over the, on a daily scale and then over a career scale, I would say. Matt, I could talk to you for hours. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's so good to connect with you again. And let's meet up in person. When can we do that? We have to play, <laughs> we have to put that on the calendars. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I'm excited. And there's, there's such an amazing opportunity here. I think you're inspired in the same way I am to see these new cohorts of, of young future physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals going out there. Uh, wanting to take on these big issues. And yeah, it's an exciting time. Vaughn, I'll I'll come up to Philly anytime and hang out in your bank vault. Are you kidding? Of course. (laughs) Let's do it. All right. Thanks, Matt. You can find Matt Trowbridge on Twitter at M-T-R-O-W-B-R. And you can reach out to me on Twitter, if you'd like, at R-S-P-U-G-L-I-E-S-E or Vaughn on Twitter and Instagram at B-O-N-K-U or at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love reading your reviews. And I don't know if you noticed, but we started a new newsletter. From now on, when you get that weekly email, when we release a new episode, you might notice some links that we post in there to some of our favorite articles, music, shows, basically things that we love and we want to share with you our loyal listeners. If you have any great ideas on things we can include in our newsletters, send them our way. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list. You can find that link right on Twitter at Design Lab Pod. Design Lab is hosted by Bon Koo. In case you didn't notice, that's why his name is in the show. Design Lab is produced by me, Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. 
thank you for sticking with us for 50 episodes. We can't wait to make a ton of more amazing content for you in the future. See you soon.